1: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch-ch-chumba. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome
0: to 30 to Curtain, a Center Theater Group podcast. I'm Michael Ritchie, Artistic Director of Center Theater For each episode of this podcast, we talk with some of the talented artists working across our three stages, the Amundsen Theater, Mark Taper Forum, and Kirk Douglas Theater. Our guest on this episode of 30 to Curtain is Neil Pepe, artistic director of the Atlantic Theater Company, and also the director of A Play is a Poem, a new play by Ethan Cohn, currently making its world premiere with us here at the Taper. Neil has worked closely with many of today's leading playwrights, including David Mamet, Martin McDonough, and Harold Pinter. He's led the Atlantic Theatre Company since 1992. I'm happy to call him a great friend and colleague, and I'm thrilled that he's back directing with us, having previously joined us on Mamet's two unrelated plays and romance, and later on Frank Gilroy's The Subject Was Roses. It's a privilege to sit down with Neil and talk about this new work from Ethan Cohn. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I look forward to seeing you at the theater. All right, we'll get to the play um, uh, uh, eventually, fairly quickly, but first let's let's talk about our relationship. Yeah. Um, uh, We've known each other for a long time now, it seems. A long, Uh, you know, the uh,
1: times it's gone by quickly. I was trying to think, I think the first time did you, you stage manage Speech See the Plow, didn't you? No,
0: you didn't? that was not my show.
1: Yeah, because no. it was, was sometime a- around that time. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, as that was going up, I, I came on to do um, Our Town. That was my first yep. one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I met you early on in those relationships. So yeah. at that time, I was stage-managing, and you were acting.
1: I was acting a little bit. I was with the Atlantic Theatre Company, and tons of the members of the Atlantic were in the Our Town that you right. stage-managed, including my now-wife, Mary McCann, uh, Stephen Goldstein, Jordan Lage, William H. Macy, lots of great people. Yeah. And it was the Spalding, of course, the Spalding Gray one, right. which was amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it was also for me, uh, you know, one of those productions that comes along now, like you, uh, I've done hundreds of productions. Yeah. And uh, I, I always think when I go to my grave, I'll have four or five in my hand that I'll take with me. Our Town is going to be one of them it'll never get beaten again I yeah. will never do that show again I don't know that I ever want to see another production again because first the play is so great which yeah. I did realize when I walked in the door I thought our town you know, every <laughs> high school does it how good how good could this be uh, and then we started rehearsal on it and also the production was so great yeah. and it was well received and then a company of friends that I've yeah. had for 30 years that are really tight, some of it because of Atlantic. Though the, you, your guys were together already. But also,
1: I mean, if you look at the that particular group at that time yeah. of amazing seasoned New York stage yeah. actors, you know, many of whom are now very, like Franny Conroy, yeah. Peter Maloney, Jeff Weiss, yeah. who we both knew yeah. was an incredible downtown theater actor. And then having somebody like Spalding Gray just bring a kind of contemporary, very real um, truth to it, it was it was amazing yeah, it was great. That's yeah.
0: great and then you did the film right when we, when we I did because my
1: friend Todd Weeks is another member of Atlantic couldn't do the huh. PBS filming so I came in as the baseball player back yeah, when I was yeah. still acting and that was a blast yeah, yeah. you were yeah. good <laughs> I don't know you know why. I think I pretty, I pretty much walked away with it. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think you <laughs> owned that yeah that <laughs> movie no.
0: actually I, we were just talking sitting here talking about Law and Order and one of the great things about that show since we started out back in the 80s was that it, it at first it was the only TV show shooting in New York I know and so it used all all theater actress constantly. And actually, the other night, I was, I watch it every night almost. Yeah. It's like a sad <laughs> sickness. Uh, but, but I was rolled over, falling asleep, and I heard you. On TV, and I popped up, and you were playing a, a very young doctor. Yeah. You were like a doogie howser type. I, you looked I, like you were I, about 12. I, I
1: know. I probably was, you know, early 20s. But, yeah, yeah I, I, we all did our, our stints a couple of times. But the other thing that also happened to a bunch of us when I was still acting is we'd do our stints on Sex in the City, and okay. those were always, like, really kind of, you know, soft-poured. So, <laughs> so, so you'd be like, people would go, oh, yeah, I saw you on Sex and the City. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> no, please <laughs> <so>. <laughs> But, yeah, it was great. It, it was was so many great friends have been on Law & Order, um,
0: so now we're both artistic directors now yeah you uh are running the the atlantic theater company how
1: long way too long like a way too uh since 1992. 1992 yeah. really because you i went to williamstown in 96 or seven i believe but before that you were at the artistic director of naked angels for a little while weren't you
0: uh, it was a it was an overlap stint that never it was right when they lost the space yep. and they had no money and they had hired me to be the artistic director but then they had no money to pay me <laughs> well, that's, so I know that right? that was like when
1: I started <laughs> that's how you get into being <laughs> so an artistic like, director yeah. you do it for no money yeah. for do you a want to while.
0: do it for free and I was like well I, I'd love nobody, to but nobody else I to work to yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, it's
1: been a long time.
0: So um, so big changes there. Uh, yeah, I
1: mean, it was, you remember this, because Atlantic, a lot like Steppenwolf, is an ensemble theater. So at that time, every year, we'd kind of go around, raise our hand, and decide, you know, if we wanted to vote somebody new. And my predecessors were Mary, my wife, was the first artistic director for a year, then Clark Gregg for three years, who's now a really successful actor and writer. And uh, and then Scott Ziegler, who's directed out here, right. he was uh, three years before me and then he kind of burned out. And so I raised my hand thinking that I might do it for a year right. or two. Honestly, I was terrified of the proposition at that time. I was mainly acting and directing a little bit. And then I kept, as I'm sure this has happened with you too, where you, you get involved, you start planting seeds for the next year with productions mm-hmm. and... Enjoying the collaboration, and it just kept growing. So yes, it was fairly small. I think it was like a two hundred fifty thousand dollars budget when I walked in, and it was almost unpaid. And now with the school, I think we're between twelve and thirteen million. So it's it's been a long time. And really, it's yeah.
0: a really significant um, theater, an off Broadway theater. And then the school is an interesting element. Yeah. there are two things. You know, we we have in some ways the same. We run the same kind of companies in it. They're institutional nonprofit theaters. Yeah. Uh, that produce both new works and revivals. Exactly. Uh, but yours has the wrinkle of be, have being both a company-driven. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, having a company of what?
1: Who? who who's well, in the company? Well, yeah, and it's kind of evolved over the huh. years because early on it was very company-driven. It was really about putting—we were all young actors who yeah. want to put ourselves to work. Yeah. We were mentored by David Mammon and William H. Macy, and they sort of said— when, when the core group got out of NYU, they said, we've incorporated this name Atlantic. Why don't you guys go off and create your own work? We'll sort of mentor you. So uh, early on, it was about putting ourselves to work as actors. Then as we started producing more new work in New York and as we started and we were all very ambitious but as we started getting older some people came out to LA to pursue film and TV and we so we continued to focus on putting the ensemble members to work either as actors and directors and then depending on the needs of the play if we needed somebody older that we didn't have or we needed more of a diverse pool you know we started to diversify the company both in terms of race and 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 age and and so it's kind of now we we do some projects that are very ensemble based mm-hmm. that are either ensemble directors or ensemble actors and we do some projects that are no ensemble members depending on the piece and what the demands are mm-hmm. of it so it's it's kind of evolved and the school yes is a large part of it we run a big school through NYU or one of the studios at Tisch School of the Arts and then we have a conservatory and a part-time thing and we do little kids stuff but that's that's been great to mm. keep young people coming in, right. to keep reminding us where we started and the sort of specific technique that Mammon and Macy started, which was all about story and action. Mm. Um, so it's it's kind of that sort of way of operating has kept us on our toes and mm. hopefully kept us as mm. vibrant as we can be. No, you've certainly grown mm.
0: over yeah. the years that I've known. There's also, you, you have um, had great success with... Um, starting musicals in your space and then having them move yeah. to Broadway, particularly musicals,
1: although I know you've also moved plays. Yeah. Um, how, how does that work? What's the... It's funny. It was sort of a fluke because, yeah. I mean, as as like you, I mean, I don't know. I didn't necessarily get in. I, w- I was a musician for a long time, and I always loved contemporary, you know, blues and rock and roll, but we were always doing straight plays. And then a project came to us, the Spring Awakening, that they had been working on for a while. We knew Michael Mayer, um, the director, and I knew Tom Hulse, who was like the sort of nurturing producer, because he had done Cider House Rules, out here with you guys, and then we did it. Um, So... They came and said, look, we've adapted Spring Awakening. Of course, we all knew Spring Awakening as the play because it was the one that was banned in Germany for 50 years and it had all the crazy sexual awakening. So, of course, everybody wanted to do it in high school. Um, So we knew that. And we ended
0: up doing Our Town. (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But we so we knew the play and loved it. And then they said we're adapting it with. This contemporary singer-songwriter Duncan Sheik, who I knew of at the time and really liked his music, and Steven Sater, who was a uh, sort of downtown New York playwright, and they had shopped it around for a while, and it was so dark. I mean, it was the music was amazing, but the the a lot of people thought it was too dark for Broadway and because there's suicide and things in it. Um, so, but Tom and Michael really liked the idea of starting it. You know, the Atlantic in New York, where we are, has a, a kind of brick church-like space. They loved that. And it just, it felt like the right fit between what we loved about plays and what we loved about contemporary music. So in a way, that's how we kind of fell into musicals. And I think since then, most of the musicals that we've developed have been a combination of hopefully sort of great playwriting storytelling and great contemporary music. We haven't done many revivals of sort of traditional musicals except for Martha Clark's Three Penny Opera, which was which was great, and that's always been kind of out there as a musical anyways. Yeah, but it's been, it's been fun. Good.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
1: Go to your happy place for a- Happy Price. Go to your Happy Price. Priceline.
0: Um. So, how the hell did we get you out here? If you're, you know, <laughs> running a theater and uh, school, it, and you are it's, its a family.
1: It's, and I mean, f- you—you've been kind enough since. What was it? It was almost your first year, the first time I directed I, I think you. you you might have been the first show the Taper. It was early. Taper. So it was, was Ma- Mammoth's Play Romance. I
0: think you were the opening show for me at <laughs> oh the God. Taper.
1: Man, I took a <laughs> I mean, chance on <laughs> you, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a massive risk. <laughs> you may still be recovering yeah. from it. I'm glad, I'm glad you allowed me yeah. back yeah. out here. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I it was i it's a thrill for me to work out here and it was such a, a, a you're so generous in, in bringing me out that was that was such a fun piece and um and such a, a great comedy but i i i don't know la that well but i know you know great people like you who who are come from the theater and it seems like la has such a vibrant theater scene that some people are aware of and some people mm-hmm. are not aware of so ha- having the opportunity to either Work. I mean, now, now having worked at the Taper three times and having worked at the Douglas once, it just, it's, it's great. And, and actually I've, I've also forgot that the audiences are great. I mean, I really thought I find them to be interested, curious and responsive. And of course, the most important thing, adventurous. I (laughs) feel like they, they want to take the ride with you. So it's thrilling for me, and I know Ethan Cohn, who's I think this is his first time. His right first here. time, here. Yeah. yeah. He's loving yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really it's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, how did you uh, meet up with Ethan?
1: So, Ethan and I, I think like you, we all had you know friends in common over the mm-hmm. over the years. Because didn't didn't Kate, did Kate. Kate and Franny Kate and, and Fran
0: McDormand yeah, w- went yeah. to Yale together right, and right. then uh, Fran had just finished shooting uh, Blood Simple which yeah. was the, the Coen Brothers first film yeah. and then came back to New York so I met those the, the Joel and Ethan uh, uh, before that even opened um, Way. so yeah. w- whenever that was so it was a long time so we became yeah. pals early
1: on no it's amazing the history so I knew of them and I may have met them in passing when Macy did Fargo right? and we were you know he was still very involved with the company in fact when he Audition for Fargo. He stayed at our apartment in New York. I remember that. Anyway, um, so we knew each other in passing. He had come to the theater. He was getting into writing some radio plays. I don't remember. He he did something. I think it was either BAM or St. Anne's that Charlie Kaufman, Joel, and Ethan put together that Carter Burwell, their composer, mm-hmm, right, did. And okay. they were radio plays. And I think there were a bunch of famous people like Meryl Streep and Phil Hoffman may have been involved. And then I think they did them in London as well. So I heard about that and was intrigued. Then all of a sudden, Ethan sent over four one-act plays, which he called almost an evening, and I read them, loved them, and said, "Let's do them. We'll do them in our our tiny space right. in, in New York, the ninety-nine seat." And he said, "Great." And I said, "Would you, you know, be willing? C- could I direct them?" And he said, "Yeah, great." So we had a blast. I mean, that F. Murray Abraham was right. in them, and Marklyn Baker, and they were just super funny and smart, irreverent, right. and. Um, also, like ten of, or twelve years ago. That was a while ago, right? Yeah, I think it owner? was. Um, it was about eleven. Yeah, ten or eleven years yeah. ago, and uh, and really, um, but also, he, he sort of cre- he liked the form. He was sort of messing with the right. form, which I thought was fine. But he did like the blackout sketches. Right. You know, where he's sort yeah. of going from one to the next. And I kept saying, "Oh, you got to write a full length. You got to write a full length." So. He's written one full length that we did that David Cromer yeah. directed called Women Are Nothing, which went really well. That was Halle Pfeiffer and Susie Susie Porfar were in that. Um, but other than that, I've directed. Um, this is the fourth set right. of One yeah. Acts, and uh, and I think in some ways, you know, it's the it's the sort of the most ambitious, but also it's I, I love that he goes to so many different places, like we were just discussing, you know. There's form-wise and theme-wise, there's a lot of different stories, and, and some are longer than others, mm-hmm. and some are sort of more more about gags than others. But really, I think he's an extraordinary writer. Yeah,
0: I, I agree. And it's interesting because it's a form that I think you know back in the 60s and 70s, you probably saw more one acts in New yeah. York off-Broadway than yeah. you see now. You don't see it utilized as much. So when, when this particular set you know landed on my desk, I was intrigued to read them. Um. Uh. And both to see, you know, what they were like individually. Yeah. But then, what are they like as a package? And that's a whole different thing because an audience is coming to see an evening of theater, and they're not necessarily well prepared for this for this
1: form. I know, and um, it goes so many different places. It, so, uh, talk about
0: the five plays just in general. Of like, you know, how are they connected at all? Is
1: there anything that connects them? Yeah, it's a good. You know, I mean, I. <laughs> It is a good question. I mean, certainly, as we've talked about there, are, I suppose you could step back and go, well, there's a certain element of iconic American right. games okay. or yeah. iconic yes, American stories. Totally. Um, All set in America. Yeah. And I think there's echoes, you know, if you've seen a bunch of Ethan and 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 Joel's movies, there's echoes of a lot of, you know, you look at the first one, you think, oh, there's a little Oh brother where art thou maybe in there and then. The the Noir one has, you know, a lot of their films have have had uh, private eye noir stuff. Um and so there's that, which is just very Ethan and uh but but they are yeah, I mean it's a it's a wide variety. And I think also some of it is is the stuff that Ethan loves. I mean, the the fourth one, the Urbanes, seems like almost either inspired by or an homage to things like the honeymooners, right. where it's just right. that yeah. 1950s, um, you know, great working class wife and, and husband who are just at each other right. and, and it's so funny to watch. But then the, the other kind of interesting thing we discovered that was very helpful is it sort of it feels like a secret weapon is having uh, the great composer, singer Nellie Mackay right. performing because she she has such a great just sense of herself and her music is so pure and 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 simple and great that she ends up bridging um, the transitions. And there's just a little arc. She's like our our almost MC or or Lady of Song or whatever you want to call her, sort of bringing the audience in. Um, So when Ethan and I were talking about it, it did feel like you were saying – you know, one acts are a form that's not around so much anymore, but even the way in which we wanted to pre- present them almost felt out of time, like it could have been almost a vaudeville thing. We wanted to be very simple in terms of the scenery right. and have this, you know, songs in between, which felt old timey. It felt early 20th century, yet they're still wildly contemporary right. once you get into the, the pieces. Um, so, yeah, there's some things that don't link them together at all because they're very different stories. But somehow, if you know Ethan's work, there's a, there's a flavor that is wholly his own. And I think that's what I, as, as, as I think you would agree, because you produce so much great work, it's always inherently about the truth of the author's right. voice. And when you yeah. find somebody who has a great knowledge of their own voice and, and that's, to your point, like you were just saying, is, you know, you and I and lots of us who grew up knowing about the playwrights of the 60s and 70s. I mean, a lot of those people that we know, like John Guare and Lanford Wilson and, and Terrence and all kinds of people, were doing the one-act form right. in the 60s. And it was, it's a cool form. And yeah. to a certain extent yeah. uh, speaks to, and I don't think Ethan would say he knows why he called it a play as a poem. But there's, an, there's an, uh, something about a compressed form that like short form storytelling, like short stories, that is cool. Yeah. It's unto itself. It's not a novel, but there's there's strengths to doing it. Yeah. No, for me, it's been
0: highly enjoyable from, you know, reading it the first time to getting it to this point uh, on the stage. And then I think for both of us, it's always the um, putting it in front of an audience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what 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 happens there? Uh, or what doesn't happen there. So now we've, at, at, at this point in uh, our, our, our conversation, we've been running for about a week of previews. Yep. We haven't yep. officially opened yet. So the first preview comes, it goes up. Um, uh, you're, you and Ethan and uh, other members of the team are sitting in the house watching it. Uh, <laughs> and then there's another week before an official opening yep. and and critics and when the the show is essentially baked, at least for this run. So yep. what happens for you and everyone else between that first preview in front of an audience and what's going to be on Saturday night when we open?
1: Yeah. Um, It's, it's a, I I always find it really exciting and to a certain extent terrifying, but you also get used to that. Um, The first time you put it in front of an audience, you learn so much because you're sitting in a rehearsal room for three and a half weeks and especially for the stuff that are comedies, you know, you can read a script for the first time and think, oh, this is really funny. When you repeat it, 80 times. All of a sudden you go, is this funny at all? Or does anybody get this? And, and, and I'm sort of watching it going- The
0: third week is yeah, the worst week the, in your the life. The third week- Nobody doing it. laughs. The actors yeah, it. And yeah, like, and we're you're are not funny. I yeah.
1: suck this. <laughs> up. Right, exactly. And they keep relying on you to laugh. And you're like, I'm not going to laugh again, because <laughs> I've heard the joke too many times. Yeah. And so, so there's really a question of whether the homework that you've done in rehearsal is effective. And so- Hopefully the best case scenario is you put it in front of an audience and they follow it, you know, and you learn what story points they follow. You learn what they may or may not not find funny. And especially with some of the denser pieces, I mean, um, the, the a tough case, the private eye one, there's a lot of. You know, just the facts, ma'am. Information that right. comes out, and you're in rehearsal, going, I don't know, is that funny? And and then all of a sudden, they followed all of these, right. you know, strange plot points that go on, which is great. And then even in at the gazebo, which is a, a a sort of dense, rich Southern antebellum piece, almost, you know, feels a little Tennessee Williams, um, like, and that too, which is very sort of, the language is very I rich love, and sometimes complicated. The, no, yeah, I love that language. But that finding way, a, yeah. finding a way so that you need to, I mean, the other, the the audience is kind of the final collaborator in the process. So you need to know, are they finding a way in? Are they there with the story? Are they listening? Because, you know, sometimes when it's not a comedy, you just want to know, are they, are they in there and following all that? So it's been a great process so that you get in first performance, you learn a lot you rehearse during the day, you make technical adjustments, you tighten, um, you change. Ethan's been making little adjustments to, you know, jokes, words. Um, sometimes you'll go, oh, we're overplaying that, or we're not allowing the audience to discover that. So it's really a process of adjusting the storytelling. I mean, I suppose it would be similar to the editing process in a, in a but it's great. I, I love that, as I'm sure you do, about live theater—that you're, you you know, you throw it up there every night, and it's a different audience, totally and you start good. to get an idea of. It's not that you want the audience to react the same way every night, right. because nor it's do a,
0: you want them to tell you what it's supposed to be. Exactly. But what you just said—it really strikes me as is pure. They're the final collaborator.
1: They are. That's they are, a and, and, great and it's that funny it. thing. Yeah. Somebody told me a story. They were, they had some little theater company in San Francisco early on. and They did a production of Waiting for Godot, and they were, they were out there one night. They started acting, and all of a sudden, they sort of got this sense. They were like, wait a minute is there anyone in the audience? <laughs> there was nobody in the audience. <laughs> so they started acting, they stopped and there was nobody there. And they were just, what are we doing? <laughs> so, cause it doesn't work without an audience. You're just sitting in a room acting and nobody's responding. So it does, it does demand, um, and it's exciting to have different audiences and, it, and, you know, sometimes the younger audience will respond to different, younger audiences will respond to different things than older audiences, but it's a wonderful, um, learning experience. And, and also when you have technical elements that are, you know, there's, I won't ruin it, but there's some sort of surprising pretty, stuff yeah, that goes yeah. on in all these, yeah. these, um, these plays, you know, keeping in line with it, they're Ethan Cohn yeah. style yeah. As, as like their movies. But so it's been, um, we're right in the middle of, it. we're just making final adjustments before the opening on Saturday. and um and really enjoying, you know, the the L.A. audiences, uh, where, yeah. which I think are really well, a The thing that I found out
0: about the L.A. audience is there's no one that comes casually. If you're going to go to the theater, yeah. you, uh, you've got to make a commitment. It's yeah. not like, you know, you're not a tourist in town. And they're going to check a box by, you know, right. coming to see a show. And you're not killing an evening because, you know, it takes, you know, an effort to get there. But... If if you deliver for an audience here, you're really rewarded. And people that go to the theater here are savvy. They go a lot. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, they don't go once a year. People that go,
1: go. So well, then I'm committed. I'm really, as I said to you, I feel like this this season that you've got programmed is is really. I mean, I I, I admire. I, I know all, almost all of the artists, and I just think they're really amazing artists yeah, and, and a lot a of them crowd, are, right? are pushing the envelope yeah. in different ways. That's yeah. fantastic. So I think it's, I think it's yeah, exciting. We feel good. Yeah. You know, on yeah. paper, it looks great.
0: You have that moment where you, you announce the season, you go like, Hey, that looks pretty good. <laughs> well, and then we've got to do it. <laughs> I, I
1: know that's the balancing act, right? Yeah. I, I know. you know, they say, some people are like, oh, you're an artistic director, so that, so that just means you sit over there and handle the art. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you know, you do the art stuff, and then there's the balancing act, yeah. which I'm sure we've talked about a lot. In order to survive in this day and age, you have to have your eye on all of it, how to, yeah. you know, how to yeah. keep things marketing and yeah. all that stuff. No,
0: there are, I'd say, there are great, great, great. Um, um, Parts to this job, yeah, uh, great. Uh, but at, at times, it's a job. There are there there are things that are like, you know, you got to go in. It's time to make the donuts. Um, I know. But the rewards that come from it, personally, and and you know, some of it is just, for me at least, the, the ability to be in the back of a uh, the back of a theater yeah. a, alone and I know. just go like, okay, this this works and you know, creating theater doesn't always work um, because there are bad or untalented people that are doing it. It's because it's such an, an amorphous pursuit that is, um, it's almost intangible how you get to having multiple people in a creative process yeah. to coalesce yeah. and then make that bridge from that to an audience. It's, yeah. Uh, even after you know forty years, it still amazes me when a show goes up. It's well, just sort of it, like, it's a little <clears throat> bit
1: of like, wow. It's true, and I, I, I think, I mean, you know, I, <clears throat> I certainly feel this way about you, and I try to try to do the same. Which is, I think we really, you know, it's it's a joy to be in a room with remarkable people, right. and it's also a joy to be in a room and and know that you're striving for excellence, but you're also You want to have a good time doing it. So it really is, you know, all those things that we say that are great about the theater, it really is about community, and it's about people coming together to tell the truth, and whether it's, you know, absurd truths or tragic truths or great stories, but there's something about the community Mm -hmm. and the fact that all of us, you know, here, whether L.A. theater Mm -hmm. or New York theater— there's a big community, and, and sharing that with a um, with an audience is amazing. But these artists, for me, that's the reason yeah, I keep doing totally it just hanging that, out yeah. with all these in, right. and act incredible right. actors and right. writers, and everybody works in theater.
0: Yeah, no, it feels like a <clears> tribe <throat> to me. That yeah. it's in and, and somehow I've been allowed into the tribe. It's like <laughs> you know one of those things. Like really, okay, yeah, good, because this is where I want to be. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, talk a little bit about the company of uh, actors in mm. these five shows so um, how do you how do you cast five different shows essentially
1: yeah I mean it's it's sort of off of that same thing of you know if you've been around a little while and you know certain actors that you've worked with before who yeah. seem to be not only are great actors for the material, but have a good sense of of language right. and presence on stage. So, a couple of the actors, Joey Slotnick, C.J. Wilson. Joey's Joey and C.J. have both worked on Ethan's one acts before with us, and I've worked with both of them in New York on other shows as well. Um, a bunch of the other actors I've always admired and never worked with, um, Max Casella and, and Miriam Silverman. And there's there's two amazing young actors, um, Sam and Michaela. And Michaela just got done doing Young Share. And she's only 20. I mean, she's no, just out of high school know, and she's right. incredible. And they're both brilliant. And then Saul Ruminek came um, and and I think Jason may have done one of the Cone Brothers film too, but Saul was in B- A Ballad of Buster Scruggs right, yeah. in the last one. And they, I knew of their work. And um, and so, so it's kind of, you know, Ethan and I kind of finding people that we, <clears throat> excuse me, that we knew through either his work or my work. And, um, and, and then, you know, it's like we were just talking about, you want to get a, you know, you want to have a a party with a great group of people who can sink their teeth into it and have the skill set to do it, but also our collaborators, meaning that it's very much an ensemble. You know, it's not about, you know, a star vehicle or something. It's, it's about serving the material. And I think it seems like, because it's been a very, you know, starting, starting with you bringing us in and, and then everybody at, at the taper has been wonderful. So I, it feels like it's been a very fun, respectful process right. yeah, where so. everybody's in it to enjoy it. And we all know, you know, whether we completely succeed or fail or, or you know, we're trying, we're all trying to do the best work we can. Right. And then, you know, as we, as we work on it, but we're having a a, a great time doing it and striving Striving for excellence when yeah. we can. Yeah, no, it's a good. It's a really good crowd. Really good crowd.
0: Uh, 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 quickly, the taper. Yeah. Uh, somewhat unusual space in relation to um, all others around the country. There yeah. are other there are other stages like that, but you know, you're in a round building with a um, um, a thrust stage. Yeah. Uh, and you are directing a comedy, so there are a, a additional. Um, challenges for you as a director yeah. that you won't necessarily have in a proscenium.
1: Um, Which you especially know being a former stage manager because right. it's all of that stuff of how you block, and it's very practical things, of where where you're moving the actors because there's people on all sides. Right. So in, to a certain extent, you have to either keep them moving in a way so that everybody gets a chance to see them from different angles, or if you happen to be... Like the last piece, a lot of it, this inside talk, which is all about Hollywood film people, um, is mostly around a desk. So you have to put that desk in a place where generally people can see the actors and, you know, if they're going to be still or they could be even things as subtle in the middle one in the gazebo. They're on a bench a lot of the time. So I'll say to them once in a while. In certain sections, push your butt back on the bench, right. and the and the other person push your butt forward. So there's a slight diagonal, right. just so people can see. And so there's a lot of those weird things. But it's that old adage, which is, um, in a thrust, you block on an X, and blo- you know, blocking as we know is moving the actors around. But what it means is you play on the diagonal because when you play on the diagonal, moving in those lines makes it more. Accessible for right. people
0: to... More to, people can see it as exactly. opposed to a proscenium with a triangle or... Yeah, you know, the, the,
1: yeah. It's a little bit of a choreographic fraud, yeah. equation. Uh, to figure out how and it then uh, in terms of
0: um, uh, sound, vo- vocal, is, yeah. it, is it different in a space like
1: that than than elsewhere? Yeah, I think it is. And that's that, you know, that's that same thing of like in this day and age. I mean, I, I've i come from the school of thought of, of, you know, actors should have strong enough voices, whether it's a thrust theater or proscenium, even if they're pointing upstage, they should have the diction and projection to hit everybody. Um, there's times, both for artistic purposes and sound purposes, where we'll we'll have some sort of well-placed, very subtle miking. Some of that has to do with the needs of the piece. One of the pieces, Nelly's playing piano while they're talking, so we needed to up their voices so they didn't have to. So she could play yell, loud enough, and they didn't have to yell over. Her. Um, but it's you know. It's a great challenge. I mean, I sort of love thrust theaters. Um, I don't necessarily get a chance to work in them that often, but I think it's exciting because you know you're wrapped. The audience wraps right, around yeah. you, so it really feels like we're all in this yeah. together. Yeah,
0: and I think the audience gets a little bit of sense of that as well when you can see another portion of the audience, uh, and I think you feel a bit more connected uh, somehow to each other and to the piece itself. So yeah. it's, it's a theater that I happen to love. It's, yeah. Uh, and and uh, I had worked a little bit on thrusts. Um, well, actually, I worked a lot at Circle in the Square, so I was also in the round.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and Lincoln Center. And Lincoln Center right? down at yeah, the Mitzi right. and right.
0: upstairs at the, the Beaumont. So yeah. I, I've had a lot of thrust experience. And for me, it is always fascinating to see um, a company come in and yeah. have uh, the, the director, the designers, and the actors figure it out, sometimes together, sometimes alone. Sometimes you just see an actor on stage learning to cheat just a half, you know, I know. A, a half bit to the left yep. to know that he's got, he or she has the the audience uh, in, in the palm of their hand.
1: Well, and it's funny, you kind of run a, you know, I, as a director, sometimes you'll just be running around the house during, yeah. during yeah, the exactly, tech, yeah. tech rehearsals. Cause you're like, what does it look like from over here? Oh, this is a terrible scene. <laughs> right. no, know, no. It was looking
0: <laughs> so great when I was on B 7 Exactly. B7 <laughs> right, exactly. I got, yeah.
1: and, and I think that's important because yeah. you want everybody, you know, no matter where they're sitting, you want them to have a good time and enjoy it. And, and there's different cool perspectives, but, but you want to make sure that you're not, you know, Sort of staging against a, a particular area of seating, so that's a that's a fun and sometimes challenging process. But I always like the trying to figure the equation out.
0: You know. Uh, uh, well, I'm really happy that you're here. You know, it's just a chance to work with you, uh, to to work with the people you bring on board. It's every time we've done it, it's been. Um, a real joy and a success. So this better, you know, continue the string for us. <laughs> well, know. it's, a, it's yeah. a thrill. So far it has. It's been <laughs> it's, great. No, it's really, yeah.
1: and, and I I, I just, I, I love coming here. And not only because it's been, you know, we have such a great history and I, I, I've always in, enjoyed collaborating with you and everybody here. But it's just, it's great, you know, in some ways sort of introducing somebody like Ethan who's new to the theater right. to have him have a chance to come out here I don't think he's ever done his plays. You know, when you called us and said, "Yeah, I want to do the the one acts and we want to do them in the taper," we're like, "Wow, okay, we're going to do the one acts in the taper." Because I I don't know that Ethan's ever done plays in a in a theater this big, and that's really exciting. Yeah. So the whole process, you know, it's it's a joy to come out here, and it's it's just it's been fun, and and you know, we. Uh, The audiences seem to be enjoying it, so we hope they keep coming and having a good time.
0: You've been listening to 30 to Curtain, a Center Theater Group podcast. You can find out more about A Play as a Poem, our organization, and upcoming productions on our website at centertheatergroup.org.